Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. If you have your Bibles, go and grab them. Turn to Exodus 39, Exodus chapter 39. We're gonna look at the first 31 verses today and then we'll finish 39 next week and begin chapter 40 next week. And then two weeks from today, we will finish the book of Exodus together as we wrap up uh, Exodus chapter 40. So Exodus 39 um, is gonna sound familiar. We've done a lot of this again, like the past few weeks have been. And it's interesting, the past few weeks, they felt a bit heavy, uh, at least to me. And people tell me, yeah, you stepped on my toes or whatever. And you just need to know, it, God's been stepping on my toes for three weeks before you get any of it. So you just be glad you're in that seat. Uh, but that's what happens for us. It's interesting, though, after you teach messages like that, uh, the people that will come to you and say, man, God really convicted me. Oftentimes, my response is, you? Like, you're the good one. How did God, well, how, like, I got a list of other people that needed to he- say that. Why did you get that? Uh, but it's, it's crazy how God works. But this morning, my prayer this morning is that this is good news to you this morning. Uh, the way that God, I think, has led me in this message and even um, between services has led me to shift and change a few things. But I believe this is really good news that's happening here today. Over the next few weeks, what's going to happen is we're going to root the story of Exodus in the whole narrative of Scripture. This is what's great about the Bible. The Bible isn't just one, uh, a bunch of smaller books. The, story, the Bible is one story. It all points to Jesus. And so we're gonna see this here over the next few weeks in the book of Exodus uh, together. And the story, the theme we're gonna look at this morning is the theme of the priest. So on the screen right now will be some scriptures that I'm gonna reference throughout the morning. There are a ton of them as we talk through priesthood and priest garments and those types of things. And so we'll get to that, a lot of it here this morning. But you're gonna see another theme that happens throughout this uh, study this morning is that there is an enemy from the beginning of time. There's been an enemy who is after our souls. There's a good God who created all things and he called them good. But in the midst of our sin and brokenness creeps in an enemy who now is after the same soul that God is seeking to rescue and to redeem. But what happens for us is that we begin to overrate that enemy And we begin to think that the enemy has the same power as the one true God. And biblically, that could not be further from the truth. And you know this because sometimes we rate football teams higher than they should be in college football. You know what I'm talking about? (laughs) Do do you know what I mean? You do do know? Oh, you watched it too? Um, So what happens though, in the very same way, is that we begin to give power Um, and ranking to something or someone that doesn't deserve that ranking. And the enemy is just like that. The only way the enemy has power in our hearts is because we ascribe to him power that he hasn't earned. That's the only way he has power. He doesn't come intrinsically with power that could ever come against the power of God. And yet we find ourselves giving power to an enemy that doesn't deserve that kind of power or that ranking. So we're gonna study that here this morning. And I hope that studying through the priest's garments will help us to understand this even a bit more uh, fully. So Exodus chapter 31, I'm gonna read verses, or 39, I'm gonna read verses one through 31. And in the middle, I'm gonna show you pictures of the priest's garments just so we have an understanding of what's happening. And then I wanna take us through this theme throughout scripture. Exodus 39, verse one. 
From the blue and purple and scarlet yarns, they made finely woven garments for ministering in the holy place. So these uh, yarns, blue, purple, and scarlet, then we're gonna see linen and gold. Remember, they've all been brought by the people of Israel and they've, gave, uh, they've gave, given so much that they had to say, quit giving, we have too much. But what you're gonna notice here, if you're paying attention, is this. There are kind of three levels in the tabernacle. The tabernacle being what they're constructing as a mobile tent, a place of worship for God. You've got the courts, and that's uh, mostly white linen around the outside, which is great, and then covered with a few things. And then there's bronze out in that area. And as you make your way into what's called the most holy place, or the holy of holies, you move from bronze into a bit of silver, and then you get gold in the most holy place. And you also move from the white linen into uh, blue, purple, and scarlet yarns woven together with gold. It's in the curtains and the tapestries. It's the uh, embroidered cherubs that are on the front. And what you're reading now is the priests. And the priests look like the holy of holies. They look like the inner place. And there's a reason for that. So they made these things. Uh, They made the holy garments for Aaron, Aaron being the high priest, as the Lord had commanded Moses. These garments are made specifically for use in the tabernacle. These are their church clothes, for lack of a better term. They put these on, it's the uniform they put on to be the priest. Once they put on this garb, put on these garments, they become uh, the personification of the priest. So here's a picture of it, just so you can see. This is what the priest most likely would have looked like. You see the white linen robe, you see the blue robe over it, you see the sash, and then what's called the ephod, connected by the shoulder pieces, and then you got the turban, the gold crown engraven on it. This is what we're going to be talking about uh, throughout the morning. So now you got that in your mind, let's go to verse two. They made the ephod of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen. They hammered out gold leaf. So you see blue, purple, scarlet, and gold, representative of the most holy place. And he cut it into threads to work it I work into the blue and purple and scarlet yarns, into the fine twine linen in skilled design. They made the ephod for attaching the shoulder pieces, joined to it at its two edges. And the skillfully woven band on it was of one piece with it and made, made like it of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet yarns, fine twine linen, as the Lord had commanded Moses. They made onyx stones enclosed in settings of gold filigree and engraved like the engravings of a signet, according to the names of the sons of Israel. And he set on them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod to be stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel as the Lord had commanded Moses. So now this is the picture of these onyx stones on the shoulders of the high priest. And engraven on them are the names of the 12 sons or 12 tribes of Israel. You're gonna see it again as we get to the breast piece, but the role of the high priest when he steps into the most holy place, which is where uh, the thick presence of God would have been, is he is carrying Israel in. He is representing Israel. He's going on behalf of the people before God. Verse eight, he made the breastpiece and skilled work in the style of the ephod of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. It was square. They made the breastpiece doubled, a span its length and a span its breadth when it was doubled. And they set in it four rows of stones. A row of sardius, topaz, and carbuncle was the first row. And the second row, an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. And the third row, a jacinth, an agate. 
and an amethyst, and the fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They were enclosed in settings of gold filigree, and there were 12 stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. Again, representing the tribes, the people of Israel. They were like signets, each engraved with its name for the 12 tribes. And they made on the breastpiece twisted chains like cords of pure gold. So here's a picture of the breastpiece, and you see the four rows of three, and these are the stones that represent uh, the tribes or the sons of Israel. So again, the high priest is carrying the people. He's representing the people in the presence of God. And they made two settings of gold filigree and two gold rings and put the two rings on the two wedges of the breastpiece. And they put the two cords of gold and the two rings at the edges of the breastpiece. They attached the two ends of the two cords to the two strings of the filigree. Thus they attached it in front of the, to the shoulder pieces of the ephod. Then they made two rings of gold and put them at the two ends of the breastpiece on its inside edge next to the ephod. And they made two rings of gold, attached them to the front, to the lower part of of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod at its seam above the skillfully woven band of the ephod. They bound the breastpiece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue so that it should lie on the skillfully woven band of the ephod and that the breastpiece should not come loose from the ephod as the Lord had commanded Moses. He also made the robe of the ephod woven all of blue and the opening of the robe in it was like the opening in a garment with a binding around the opening so that it might not tear. On the hem of the robe, they made pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. They also made bells of pure gold and put the bells between the pomegranates all around the hem of a robe, between the pomegranates, a bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe for ministering as the Lord had commanded Moses. Well, that was exciting. So here's a picture again. And you see at the bottom, the tassels, you've got woven uh, pomegranates and then you've got bells alternating. So the bells would uh, serve a couple purposes. One is that it would tell the people of Israel the high priest was coming through. But more importantly, the bell would ring whenever the high priest was ministering in the tent of meeting. So when you go into the Holy of Holies, there was a process by which he had to become clean. And should he skip a step or should he not confess a sin or not wash properly, the moment he stepped into the holy presence of God, he would fall down dead. And so as long as the priest was ministering in the Holy of Holies, you would hear the bells ringing. But as soon as he stopped, uh, as soon as he fell down dead because of impurity, you would no longer hear the bells. So these are very important bells on the, on the hem of the high priest. They would tie a rope around his ankle. When the bell stopped ringing, they'd give it some time and then they'd pull the high priest out and then begin the process of anointing a new high priest. This is how holy God is. He demands perfection in his presence. So much so that he is prepared for the lack of perfection and holiness in his presence. Then verse 30 or 27, they also made coats woven of fine linen for Aaron and his sons. Aaron is the high priest. His sons are the priests. So they are under the high priest and the turban or the hat crown of fine linen and the caps of fine linen and the linen undergarments of fine twine linen and the sash of fine twine linen and of blue and purple and scarlet yarns embroidered with needlework as the Lord had commanded Moses. And so now here's a picture. The white is the priest. The other garb is the high priest. So you see, even the high priest has really the priest garments underneath, but they are bright white, shining apparel in the white linen. Aaron would have been the high priest. The other sons would have been the priests. Verse 30, they made the plate of the holy crown of pure gold and wrote on it an inscription like the engraving of a signet to the Lord holy to the Lord. And they tied it to it, a cord of blue to fasten it on the turban above as the Lord had commanded Moses. And here's a picture of that. And in Hebrew, it says, holy unto or holy as to, holy to the Lord. 
What's being, the statements being made there is, as you step into the presence of God, we've done everything. This is holy. He is holy. When he puts the garments on and goes through the cleansing, he becomes holy. And so again, here's a picture of what we're talking about uh, with the whole outfit. So we read it here in Exodus and we think, okay, that's great. It's the uniform for the priest, wonderful. But what's true about much of Exodus is that what happens in Exodus carries throughout the rest of the Bible. This is foundational for us. And so while a priest here for the first time is given official responsibilities and given an official outfit and clothing and uniform, this idea of a priest has been there from the beginning of creation. It begins with Adam and Eve in the garden. And we don't pick up on it because we haven't gotten there yet in the rest of scripture. But Adam and Eve are given priestly commands. They're given a priestly duty. When Adam is told to work the garden and to keep it. The garden, uh, much like the tabernacle, has three areas. Eden has three areas. And right there around the tree in the garden is the Holy of Holies. It's where the presence of God is. And God gives Adam the command to work the garden, but then to keep or to guard it. It's the same words that would be used when they uh, consecrate the priests and give them their responsibilities of the tabernacle. To keep or to guard that which God has given to them. But we know the story, most of us, that Adam and Eve sin. They blemish their garments. They blemish their calling as priests. And so they begin to cover their uh, insecurity, their sin, their brokenness with fig leaves. God gives them the first priest clothing, which is animal skins. It's covering uh, the body with the animal skins and, and sacrifice. So here in Exodus, we're carrying off of that term, that idea. But then throughout the story of scripture, this idea of a priest develops. And in the New Testament, uh, Peter calls us, followers of Jesus, a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood. And the role of a priest is to represent the people to God and represent God to the people. But like Adam and Eve, we understand that we are not a pure, righteous, holy to the Lord kind of people. But throughout scripture, holiness is often referred to as a pure garment. And often it's white linen. You see it even into Revelation chapter 19, where the armies of God are clothed in white apparel. We are white. The saints are given white clothing. But in Isaiah 64, Isaiah tells us a bit about our garments as they are. He says, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. So the theme throughout scripture is that God demands holiness. God demands purity but we aren't capable of it. Our sins have made us like a polluted garment. What we wear is polluted. But then Isaiah continues. He says, we all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. So let me just tell you this this morning. My job this morning is to not tell you you is kind, you is pretty. That's not my job. My job this morning is to teach you the Bible and what is an undeniable fact throughout scripture is that we are a sinful, broken people. We are a people who wear polluted garments. The Bible is clear. It is undeniable, unarguable. It's true of every single one of us. There is no one righteous. No, not one. Which Isaiah would say, David would quote it again in the Psalms, and then uh, Paul would quote it again in Romans 3. Not one of us. No matter what your flavor of sin is, not one of us are holy enough to stand before a holy God. But the good news of the Bible is that's not where the Bible stops. The Bible continues. Solomon say, would say in Ecclesiastes that you and I have eternity written into our hearts. There's something within us that desires union with God. And we don't know how to say that 
until we learn what it is we're actually looking for. And so we think we need a new job. We think we need a better relationship. We think we need more money. We think we need comfort and success or we just need a vacation. What we need is the presence of God. That's what we need. But the problem for us is we can't get into the presence of God because of our filthy garments, our polluted garments. So I wanna take us back to Genesis just to show us where this all comes from. So Genesis chapter three in the Garden of Eden, God has created the world and everything is as it should be. The word he uses is good. It's perfect, it's complete. And in the garden, we read about a serpent. Genesis chapter three, verse one. Now the serpent was more subtle than any or crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He's crafty. The serpent was crafty and he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So in Genesis 3, we meet the enemy. We meet him. And what we learn quickly about our enemy is that he is crafty. He's subtle, he's tricky, he's deceitful. But what you need to know about the enemy is he is not all powerful. He cannot create. He cannot be everywhere at once. He is none of the things that God is. He's just crafty. And the way he is crafty, primarily we read right here in verse one, where he says to the woman, did God actually say? The primary method of our enemy is to get into our minds with a simple question. Did God actually say? And in the subtle craftiness of the serpent, everything begins to unravel. So he asks, he asks Eve, who would have gotten the message from Adam, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And then verse two, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. That's true. All of them, any of them. But God did say, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, which he said. And now she adds on to God's word, neither shall you touch it. God never said you shouldn't touch it, lest you die. So the simple, subtle, crafty question of the enemy has now begun to spun some distortion of Eve. Verse four, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Our enemy, our overrated, overranked enemy, cannot create, he can only distort. And the primary way he distorts is he distorts the words of God. It's how he's done it from Genesis 3 till now. It's what he continues to do. Every lie you've believed about God began with a question from the enemy. Did God actually say? But now notice what happens. She gets that seed planted in her mind and what was planted in her mind now moves, her way to, moves the, its way to her eyes. Now watch what she sees. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. The enemy planted a seed of doubt in her mind. Did God say this? And then he begins to say, you know why God said that, right? It's because he's holding out on you. Like you think he's good, but I'm telling you, just listen to what he's saying. You can't have this. That must mean he's not for you. He's not good. And from that distortion, now her eyes and the flesh, she begins moving away from the faith in the unseen of a good God, a good father, and now fixes her eyes on the tree and says, oh, you're right. It is pretty. And you're telling me this would make me wise. I mean, why, why wouldn't I want to be wise? And why wouldn't God want me to be wise? It's a subtle shift from faith in the unseen 
to the flesh that leads us first to sinful thoughts and now to sinful behavior. Verse seven, and the eyes of both of them were opened. They ate and the eyes of both of them, Adam and Eve were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now the enemy has them. And so now to cover what has been exposed, which is true, to cover their nakedness, to cover their vulnerability, to cover their brokenness, they run to something that they can find, which happens to be fig leaves. And they put the fig leaves together. And I, listen, I don't, I don't know what kind of clothes you wear or underwear, I don't even care. But I would imagine fig leaves is not at the top of your list. Fig leaves, I mean, obviously uncomfortable, but there's a problem with fig leaves. The, morning, the moment you pull them off of the vine, they begin to die. And so at some point, whatever was meant for covering will no longer suffice for covering. For us, we do the same thing. When the enemy uh, drops the seed of lie and deceit into our minds and we begin to see God differently than who he actually is and we find ourselves walking in sin and then we recognize, I've got to cover my sin. We run to fig leaves, things that will cover for a moment but not for eternity. We run to things like good behavior and hyper-spirituality. We run to church attendance. We run to burning all of our Metallica CDs. This is, this is what we run into. Isn't it? it's, it's, it's the way that we try to modify behavior and try to cover up our brokenness. We run to better church attendance. We run to serving more and giving more. This is what we run to. But if you're being honest, you've recognized that fig leaf withers and dies. Then you need another one and another one and another one. And so the war for our souls continues. It's a constant battle for your soul and for mine, for our hearts and our affections. But where we find ourselves today is that the truth of God has become so distorted and we've begun to believe it that now it's begun to cycle in on itself that it's really hard to discern the voice of God from the voice of the serpent, isn't it? Because sometimes in his subtleness and his craftiness, the serpent sounds a lot like the Bible. By saying things like, yeah, yeah, but if God is a God of love, why would he say I couldn't love this person? I mean, that makes sense. God's loving if God was a God of love, then why, why would he force this to happen? This is how the enemy works. The brokenness of our world is reinforcing the, the lies and deceit of the enemy. But I'm telling you, the enemy is overranked. He's overrated. He should not be up that high. He has no power over us. If you would turn to Zechariah chapter three, Zechariah is a prophet and he comes years after everything that's happening in Exodus. And Zechariah um, is bringing the people of God back from exile in Babylon and bringing them back to Jerusalem. And God has called the people to rebuild Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. And the temple is just the next iteration of the tabernacle. And so he's called uh, two men back uh, to, to build it, Joshua and Zerubbabel. But Zechariah is the prophet who's trying to get the people of God to do what God has called them to do. But listen, they've been in exile for 70 something years. It's been beaten out of them. The deceit of the enemy has really proven itself uh, to be worthwhile to listen to. And so they're struggling. But Zechariah has a few visions, a few dreams, and he repeats them to the people. And here's the one that he has in Zechariah chapter three. God showed me Joshua, the high priest. This is not Moses' Joshua. It's a different Joshua a number of years later but it's a high priest. So keep in mind what we read in Exodus 39, standing before the angel of the Lord. That phrase, the angel of the Lord, is an Old Testament way of saying Jesus. Joshua the high priest is standing before the Lord, Jesus, 
and Satan is standing on his right hand to accuse him. Now, Satan is the word used primarily in the Old Testament to reference the enemy that we talk about. And Satan means the adversary or the accuser. And in the Hebrew, this verse reads, and Satan was standing on his right hand, Sataning him. Satan's gonna Satan, isn't he? So he's standing there accusing. So I want, we need to use our sanctified imaginations, and this is the vision that God gave to Zechariah, to picture a courtroom scene. And what you've got is you've got a right judge, the Lord, God, and then you've got Jesus standing there as well, but now you've got Joshua, a high priest. And on his right-hand side is the prosecuting attorney, the accuser, Satan. And this is the vision that God gave to Zechariah. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O accuser. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now remember a high priest, his job, because he has all the names of the tribes of Israel on him, is that he represents Israel. He goes to God on behalf of Israel. And so in this vision, when God sees Joshua, the high priest, he doesn't just see Joshua, he sees Israel. He sees his people, his children, his chosen nation. And he describes Joshua or the chosen nation of Israel as a brand plucked from the fire. Now, a brand would be like a, a, a stick that's been burnt in a fire and it's charred. It still has the shape of a stick, but it's good for nothing. It might be smoldering, it might be smoking, but you can't even light it on fire again. It's got nothing to offer whatsoever. And the Lord speaks to Satan and says, this is who you've brought? And he says, don't you understand? This is the one that I've chosen. Like you're about to make some accusations. You need to understand. I know what I'm getting myself into. When I plucked him from the fire, he wasn't a a good piece of seasoned wood to burn. He was already this dark brand. He already was. So you're gonna bring him to me and make accusations of him in my presence. You need to understand, you will not fool me. I know what I'm doing. I knew what I was getting myself into when I chose him. Is this not the one that I plucked from the fire? In verse three, Joshua was standing before the angel clothed in filthy garments. But a high priest should never be in filthy garments. A high priest should be in the pure linen, should be in the shining gold filigree. This is, this is who the high priest should be. But what's happened over the past 70 years of exile is the high priest has found himself not behaving like a high priest. And like the theme of scripture, his garments now are no longer white as snow. Now they're filthy, they're polluted garments. And he stands before God. And Satan, the enemy, is making accusations. But isn't that what happens for us? Like it's in the seasons of exile, in the seasons of suffering, that the enemy makes the loudest accusations, isn't it? It's in the hard times, in the dark times, that the enemy's voice seems to creep in and say things like, you know you deserve this, right? You, you know it's your financial decisions that caused this for your family. You know you deserve what you're walking in right now. You know, you know you deserve this cancer. You deserve this infertility. It's in that darkness where the enemy creeps in and says, this, you get it, right? You're disgusting. You are filthy. And so at that point, the enemy feels the courage now and he brings Joshua before the Lord. Clothed in filthy garments and the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. 
Jesus, the angel of the Lord, doesn't say, that's not that bad. It's not that dirty. I've got teenagers, that's way, they're way worse. This is not so bad. He doesn't say things like, oh, I can clean that up or go get me my rag or go turn the shower on. So he doesn't sweep the filthiness under the rug. He doesn't say that's not that big of a deal. He doesn't pretend it's not there. The way Jesus handles the filthiness of Joshua of Israel and of his people is he says, take them off of him. Remove the filthy garments. But then it gets even better from there in verse four. The angel said to those who stand before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And he said to him, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Not, I'm gonna put this over that. It's get that off of you. I've got clean, pure, priestly garments to put on you. I'm gonna give you pure vestments. And then verse five, I said, let them put a clean turban, crown on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothe him with garments. And if you were paying attention in Exodus 39, this turban has a piece of gold on it, and that piece of gold has a Hebrew phrase on it. You know, remember that Hebrew phrase is holy to the Lord. So while the accuser, the enemy, the overranked, overrated enemy, stands next to us as if he has power, and he stands before God and says, Is this your high priest? This is your holy priesthood, this is this is him. This is your follower. This is your Christian. This is your church member. This one. You see how dirty he is? And God's response in the courtroom is, yeah, I see. And I knew it the moment I picked him. Yeah, I see how filthy she is. Yeah, I see her brokenness. Yeah, I see his addiction. Yes, I see his struggle with pornography. Yes, I see her addiction to heroin. I see all of it. Yes, I see his uh, propulsion to gossip and her propulsion to listen. I see all of it. But don't you get it, Satan? I chose that one. And because I chose that one, I've got a plan for that one. Take the filthy garments off. And then he gives us the garments of that priest with a crown engraved in gold, holy to the Lord. Holy to the Lord put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments and the angel of the Lord was standing by. It's interesting, this idea of new clothes is not something that's stuck only in the Old Testament. Paul would reference it in Ephesians and again in Colossians, but Jesus references it in Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, Jesus is telling a series of parables uh, in light uh, or in, in the audience of the Pharisees and scribes, those experts in the law who demand perfection because it makes them money, it makes them feel good, and the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the sinners, all there. And he tells a series of stories about how God leaves the 99 to find the one. He, he searches for the lost sheep, he finds the lost coin, but then there's this parable he tells of two sons. And one son, uh, the younger son, asked, asked the father for his inheritance. This is to say, I wish you were dead. I just want your money. I want what you can give me. I don't want you. And so the father gives it to him. And an older son who is uh, a seemingly a righteous, a righteous son who's working in the field. And this younger son runs off into a faraway place and finds himself in sin. In, I mean, literally in filth, in a pigsty. Finds himself there. And in Luke chapter 15, verse 17, the story begins to switch. 
When he, the younger son, came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. The younger son says, I'm gonna go to the courtroom, I'm gonna stand before my father and I'm gonna say, I'm awful. And I don't deserve to be your son. I just, I just wanna be back. I, just, I need to eat, make me, hire, make me one of your servants. And then verse 20, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. I heard it said this past week, he, the father is not leaning against the fence post with his arms crossed waiting for the I told you so. He's waiting for the son to come back and say, I told you. I told you you shouldn't have gone there. I told you you shouldn't have seen that or said that or been there. I told you you shouldn't have spent your money on that. I told you you shouldn't have dated her. None of that. Instead, the father, looking for his son, runs to him. And in verse 21, the son came to him and said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, as, as if to cut him off, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hands. So it would have been a signet ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. The younger son comes running home and the father, instead of waiting to give the I told you so's, runs and tells him, get him new clothes. Get him the fresh ones. Get him the clean garments. Get him the ones that, that, that make him a representative of my family. Go get him. Get the robe, get the ring, get the shoes. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. When Jesus talks about salvation when he talks about coming home, when he talks about what it is to be clean, he often references the priest's garments, the idea of new clothes and new garments. And no more, none more powerfully than he does here in Luke chapter 15. So listen, there's some of us here today and the lies of the enemy have creeped into our minds and planted seeds. And it began with a question of, did God actually say? And if you grew up in church, what he plants in your mind is, didn't God say you had to be perfect? Didn't God say that you have to obey these commandments? Didn't God say that he has no dealing with sin? This is what the enemy plants in your mind. Seemingly true things. And what happens then is that instead of running to our father, we stay a long ways off because he's right, we're, we're not. We're filthy, we're dirty, we're not good enough. Some of you, the lies that have been planted into your minds are, you know your son wouldn't have done that if you were a better father. You know, if you were a better mom, she wouldn't have wound up pregnant. You know, if you would have spent your money more wisely, you could be retired by now. You know, if you weren't such a drunk. Because the enemy has planted the seed. You know God wants your perfection, right? And you're so far from it. But Zechariah chapter three and Luke chapter 15 tell a different story of the good grace of God. Because the lies of the enemy stand no, tr no power against the truth of God's word. And so when we run home to our father, he wraps us up and he holds us. 
as a son who's come home. But in this story, there's a second son. If you go to verse 25, his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your father has come and your brother has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. Because there are some of us here today who you hear that God gives you new garments, God covers your sin, that, that there are people who stand before the Lord guilty and God covers their guiltiness with his righteousness and you hate it because you're the good one. In your mind, sure, I'll stand before God, but I got a whole list of things. And so you're this son who's standing out in the field saying, he gets, why, why does he? That's not fair, it's not right. He was angry and refused to go in. So his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command. That feels like an exaggeration. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father says to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. I'm starting to believe the enemy doesn't have to work as hard anymore because he's got Christians already saying the things that he wants to say to people. I just wonder if he's already done enough damage that now he doesn't speak, have to speak at all. He just lets the church do it for him. And the church says things like, you've wasted the father's money on prostitutes. And the righteous, the religious say things like, how dare you come back here again? But what's happened is that we've lost the message of the gospel of Jesus. That when I was a sinner, Christ died for me. The wages of sin is death. But grace is the gift of God for salvation so that no one may boast. This is, this is the beauty of the gospel. And it's here in Exodus 39 that we get the priest's garments. We get to be in the presence of God. But the epi epidemic of the lies of the enemy have distorted our vision so much that we can't even see it there. This Mallory comes up and just plays... Behind, I just want us to begin to stop and to think about this for a second. First is this. What lies have you begun to believe about who God is and who you are? What lies have you, uh, what, how has Satan distorted the word of God in you? Secondly is this. How have you told lies to other people about who God is? Sure, maybe you've never said it out loud, but it was a look. It was the removal of your friendship. It was a post on social media. And one of the reasons I think that Satan can just kick his feet up and just rest is because of social media. Why does he need to be whispering stuff? We're typing it for him. I don't know what lies you've begun to believe, but I need you to know that God is better than that. And the enemy has been overrated doesn't belong in the top 25. You've got a king who is the champion 
and the enemy stands no chance against the truth of God. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes this morning as we walk through and wrestle, process what's happened? I don't know where you find yourself today, but I know us well enough to know that the lies of the enemy sometimes generate power that feels insurmountable. And some of us have gone to really dark places with that thought. There are students who've gone to really dark places with thoughts like that. The enemy has told you, you deserve this, you deserve a father like that, you deserve this punishment, you deserve, if you would've, if you wouldn't have. The enemy tells lies like, look how chaotic the world is. There's an advocate who stands next to you, who recognizes the brokenness that you have when he chose you. And he's not surprised by it, he's not turned off by it. He's got a plan for it. And the plan is first of all that you would take off the old garments. So maybe for some of us, the reason the enemy's lies are so loud is because we've still got the old garments on. And we see evidence of it. It's really hard to deny your filthiness while you're covered in it. So the first thing that some of us have to do is to take off the old garments. It's to repent, to confess and repent, fix our eyes on Jesus. And then when you're covered in the priest's garments, when you're covered in the holy vestments, when the lies of the enemy come and you look down and say, dirty, look at me. No, no, no. I'm covered in the righteousness of God, dressed in his righteousness alone. Some of us need to take off the old stuff. We need to put the new stuff back on. And there are some of us today who need to recognize that your words have aligned you with an enemy. And as a church, may we be a people who speak truth to one another in love. Speak the power of God's word. And wife, maybe it's time you do it for your husband. He's already believing the lies of the enemy. He already feels not good enough, feels like not a good husband and not a good father. He's aware of his addiction. He's aware of his struggle. And what he needs is for you to say, yeah, yeah, baby, but you're covered. You're dressed in the righteousness of a father. Maybe your kids need to hear it today. Maybe you're here today and you have never put on the new garments of salvation. And you've recognized that the fig leaves you've tried to use to cover your sin are fading quicker than they ever have. Well, there's grace in that. There's grace in that you're recognizing your religiosity will never cover it. Your workaholism will never cover it. Your, your pursuit of success and money will never cover it. And the grace is that God has already prepared garments for you that weariness in your soul can be satisfied in the presence of God. If you would give your life to him today. Father, we love you. Thank you for the clean garments you've given us. God, there are seasons, the lies of the enemy are so loud in my mind and my soul. And they're not always wrong. The accusations aren't always wrong. 
but I'm thankful to know that you've plucked me from the fire. And you've given me your robes of righteousness that I might find peace and contentment in your presence today. So God, speak loudly today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.